Hi, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. Yeah, we're still on the road doing our gonzo. American pilgrimage leading up to the big midterm elections. America's having a nervous breakdown, and we want to capture every nuance and particularity of it. You know, Stacy, in a previous show, I mentioned that we passed a dead horse on the highway. Uh, I think it was leading into Yosemite. We went back to see what happened to the horse. The horse was gone except for this one horseshoe. So this is the only thing left of that dead horse we found on the highway. Bang. Ooh, ow. I think horseshoes are supposed to be lucky. Uh, Not for that horse. So for 1301, episode 1301, actually we saw the dead horse. We did see a dead horse right outside of Flagstaff, where we are sitting right now. Flagstaff is, of course, old cowboy country. And we're here, and uh, it's having a great time on our gonzo journey. But I wanted to note a few things that we saw on, along the way, um, in particular in San Francisco, where we know about this homelessness crisis and it's a horrific one, but the UN has just declared it's like inhumane and cruel, uh, the most progressive city in America, and yet it's extremely cruel towards a large percentage of its population. They, in fact, the UN said that um, San Francisco cuts these people off from their water and other services, basic human services. You know, it reminds me of a comment we made a while ago talking about the bailouts of 2008 being like the reparations that were forced onto Germany at the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, what I mean by that is that after the huge loss of World War I, uh, the Treaty of Versailles imposed these draconian reparations on Germany, which bankrupted the country and led to the horrors of World War II. Uh, in 2008, the bankers were given 16, 17 trillion dollars or so as reparations uh, after they held the economy hostage. And it created this huge schism in the economy, this huge wealth and income gap. Now, here we are in 2018, and you have conditions that are like pre-World War I or pre-World War II Europe, where one class of society is about to go completely under the bridge and into the river Styx to a fiery end because they've been ignored, they've been scapegoated, they've been vilified, and they've been castigated to the flames of hell due to neoliberalism in America expressed in San Francisco. They're literally flushing an entire population down the toilet in San Francisco because they think that their technology makes them God. Certainly, and we see that with the rise of so-called far-right-wing uh, leaders, whether it's uh, here in America or India. Certainly in Brazil, we've seen uh, Jair uh, Bolsonaro win, and he's definitely very far right. But I want to look at another headline about this wealth and income gap, and in, in particular the bailed out class, that, the privileged class that got the bailouts. And this is a remarkable report from UBS. UBS PwC Billionaires Report 2018, total billionaire wealth grows 19% to a record U.S. dollars, 8.9 trillion. Billionaire's wealth enjoyed its greatest ever increase in 2017, rising 19% to $8.9 trillion, shared among 2,158 individuals. Despite healthy growth in the Americas and Europe, Chinese billionaires expanded their wealth at nearly double the pace, growing by 39% to $1.12 trillion.
Right. Well, with the help of the central bankers, they were able to take the global economy. And if you imagine the global economy like a giant pool table with lots of balls on that pool table, and people are playing pool, and they're competing, and they're trying to make money, some winners, some losers. But starting a couple of decades ago, but really pronounced in 2008, the central banks and the elite took out a big saw, and they cut the legs off one end of the pool table so that it was tilted down, and all the balls flowed into their pockets. And they said, oh, look, we're geniuses. Oh, we, we stole all the balls, and that makes us geniuses. And we can cast to get a whole population into eternal hell and make them die in the street and defecate on each other shoot up smack all day because we're geniuses, because we're technologists, because we're central bankers. And of course, uh, they will rise up and probably turn into zombies and eat their children. And as their children are being eaten, the rich will say, well, the hell with them. I never liked that kid anyway. Uh, UBS, of course, doesn't seem quite alarmed by this. They think that this is a sign of basically brilliance on the part of these billionaires and in fact but they however do mention for the first time I've ever seen they mentioned blockchain as a cause for the rise of some of these billionaires globally self-made billionaires drive innovation they've driven 80 percent of the 40 main breakthrough innovations over the past 40 years in 2017 a total of 199 entrepreneurs became self-made billionaires including innovators in the fields of blockchain peer-to-peer -peer lending genomics and green energy oh that, that's true i mean blockchain and bitcoin is a ray of hope there are billionaires being created but on the back of a technology that is egalitarian in nature and bitcoin is hard money it's the hardest money ever created and it'll disenfranchise the central bank so there is a path toward a hopeful future but i mean that's quite interesting how disruptive th that that list of of billionaires self-made billionaires that they're pointing out here is is really disrupting the old billionaires because they mentioned bitcoin a blockchain peer-to-peer -peer lending and green energy of course green energy is the you know the antithesis of all that is in America it's this is all about big oil and and coal and that's what Trump is pushing but apparently green energy billionaires are being made I think that's mostly in China where the government is also coordinating with these corporations to devise policy well that's the difference between let's say CNBC and Kaiser report when we recommended Bitcoin in 2011 at one dollar we started the path of 500,000 or more toward millionaire billionaire status and they're now changing the world for the better. CNBC would have Warren Buffett on the show on their network and all he does is equity buyouts and mergers and gets free money from the Fed and doesn't really create anything. So that's the difference between our show and CNBC is that we're helping change the world for the better. Uh, CNBC is just helping facilitate the collapse into uh, the pits. So in terms of how people how these new billionaire class remember their wealth increased by 19 percent in the past year so where they're making it in Europe and the US a lot of it is being inherited up to 40 percent I think that's mostly in Europe but in China the Chinese cohort is 97 percent self-made many of them in sectors such as technology and retail 89 Chinese entrepreneurs became billionaires in 2017 roughly three times more than in the US and Europe well, the, the catch of it all for these crypto billionaires and new billionaires is any money that they put into fiat will get obliterated because we're heading to a fiat inflationary apocalypse and a bond collapse. So those crypto billionaires, they need to store their wealth in crypto, in Bitcoin, or they're going to lose it all. That's what, as the guy who told you to buy it at a dollar, I'm telling you to keep, don't put it in fiat. Only keep money in fiat that you're willing to lose. One of the things that we've been covering is kind of 
A lot of the headlines that you see on the macroeconomic front and the sort of craziness, this, um, you know, the rise of right wing, the rise of the le far left, the rise of far right, all of this sort of, sort, you know, cultural civil wars going on and all this, there is a sort of anxiety in the air. I reckon if we were alive back in pre-World War I, there would have been a similar feeling because of the decline of the great power, which was the United Kingdom at that time. And I think that the fact that we're kind of a declining power, I think that disturbs the, you know, the, the basically the hive that we all are as humans. Like we're, we're similar to any group of, care, of, of animals out in the Serengeti. You know, we, ha we sense that, you know, power is about to shift. So here's another article, here's another point about these billionaires that suggests that China is where you should really look for what is going to be the big conflict coming up. Billionaires from Asia, and especially in China's city of Shenzhen, are now challenging the U.S.'s traditional dominance in technology entrepreneurialism. In 2017, they equaled America's level of venture capital funding for startups, registered four times as many artificial intelligence-related patents, and three times as many blockchain and crypto-related patents as their U.S. counterparts. The shift in, to China as new world power and the collapse of the U.S. as empire will be underwritten by the emergence of artificial intelligence that's being financed and funded in China. And China will figure out a way to manipulate America using AI, artificial intelligence. And all these memes that are said to be manipulating the election outcomes in the U.S., their origin will be mostly coming from China. As China really moves in and leading up to 2020, attempts a soft coup using memes and information warfare. And that's going to be the battle in 2020. It's going to be Chinese memes versus uh, Trump. UBS itself points out that part of the reason why China is creating so many more billionaires than Europe or the U.S. is essentially that the Europe and the U.S. already have their oligarchs and the oligarchs never allow new entrepreneurialism to enter. China is kind of new to the global economy and they're rising rapidly. Sure, you have to kind of be connected to the Chinese Communist Party, but they're huge whole new industries to create and the fact that they don't have that legacy banking system that they can come up with things like you know all these Ali, Alipay and all the WeChat and things like that that our legacy system here in the United States it doesn't allow obviously if you have to interact with the banking system here it's already so much backward compared to Europe I can't even imagine how much more advanced it is in China right the uh, financial innovation sector will leapfrog ahead of the legacy systems that you have here in the US and China will be certainly ahead in that game as is many countries in uh, Africa uh, are finding the same type of thing and um, the key for Chinese dominance going forward not only is AI and technology and venture capital, but they've been buying gold by hundreds and hundreds of tons, uh, as is Russia. So they understand that only keep money in fiat that you're willing to lose. The Chinese government's message to their people is only keep money in fiat that you're willing to lose, Chinese people. That's what the Chinese government tells their people. And the Chinese elite are buying gold by the ton, hundreds of tons, hundreds and hundreds of tons, because they know that the fiat money inflationary death spiral is upon us. 
And then finally, I'm going to turn to this headline in old Europe. Uh, you know, Italy has been suffering kind of a debt crisis, and everybody's worried that they're going to go bankrupt and what's going to happen because, of course, the Germans don't want to bail out another economy. Well, a Bundesbank economist has a radical plan to have Italy's debt. Italy's populist government doesn't need to ask for money from European partners to have its debt. It could tap the large private wealth of its citizens, Bundesbank economist Karsten Wendorf suggested. Instead of a European fund that buys Italian government bonds and that is ultimately backed by European taxpayers, a national fund should be created. This one would buy Italian government bonds. And such a fund would be financed by, quote, national solidarity bonds that Italian households will be obliged to purchase, for example, to the tune of 20% of their net wealth. At such a rate, almost half of Italian government debt could be converted into solidarity bonds. Right, this is wealth confiscation. This is the same as a bail-in, where the government simply takes money out of people's checking account, as we saw in Cyprus. Uh, it's different than a bailout, where the government just awards the banks and the creditors trillions of dollars, who then destroy the underlying economy in ways that make them super ultimate billionaire wealth, and everyone else on the street in San Francisco shooting up smack and eating their own feces. Uh, but I suggest that they just monetize meatballs. In Italy, they'd have a fantastic wealth there. You can buy meatball collateralized obligation bonds underwritten by Goldman Sachs. You can print all the meatballs you possibly could need to finance your ongoing debt situation. Don't steal money from the Italian people. Okay, I think that was tried in the uh, 40s already, and it didn't end well, right? The guy with the brown shirt and the funny hat and all that stuff. Don't do that again. Learn from history. Don't repeat history. Well, before we go, I mean, this kind of reminds me of Obamacare in that it's like a forced payment that you have to make, but it's just painted in a sort of positive, cheerful way. It's like this is a solidarity bond. It's not a tax. It's a, you're, you know, basically showing your solidarity with the nation, the Italian nation. And he goes on to say that Italian voters would be directly involved in solving an Italian problem. Depending on their financial capacity, he wrote, this would strengthen confidence in a sound fiscal policy for the future. Ultimately, a national problem will be solved by national solidarity. Yeah, they'll steal your horse, but give you a horseshoe. <laughs> Thanks, Italian government. Hey, we got to take a break, but much more coming your way. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to turn to Corey Hughes. Corey, welcome to the Kaiser Report. Thank you, Max. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So we want to talk to you because you are somebody who is trying to organize something that seems resistant of being organized, a bit like herding cats. You're trying to create a master crypto podcasting network. And how's that going so far? Because this is something that's desperately needed in this space. There's so much noise, very little signal, as we say. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. I run a company called Private Key Publishing, and I work with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency thought leaders and influencers to transform the content that they're already producing, primarily on YouTube uh, or maybe some original audio stuff, pushed out onto iTunes and over 20 other. Their platforms. So this would be equivalent to a label, like they have a bunch of artists, and you'd be kind of the label supporting them. That's correct. That's the closest uh, analogy to our business model. Uh, the great thing about it is we can step in and we can help all of these content producers in the Bitcoin and crypto 
space who aren't really perhaps familiar with best practices or things like lighting, sound quality, video quality. They just know how to hit start and stop on the YouTube record button. So basically we've been able to come in and help guide them on best practices and kind of develop them a little further um, in what they're already doing. Uh, plus, if you look to the future of media, you're going to see that uh, podcasting is following a very similar trajectory to Bitcoin. And we anticipate in the next two to three years that both the rise of podcasting and the rise of Bitcoin will kind of converge. There's a term there, influencer. And this is kind of a new term, actually, that's popped up in the last few years, the influencer. What is an influencer? Uh, well, you'll get a different definition from various people. However, to me, an influencer is an expert in their field who is then projecting correct and accurate information out to the space. Uh, one of the biggest problems in the crypto media space, thanks in part to YouTube, is that anybody with a camera and enough knowledge to be dangerous can start to make videos and therefore influence people in their decisions or to purchase or to not purchase into, into crypto. Um, the problem is that many people are being steered in the wrong direction. And when you're working with influencers, uh, an influencer is somebody who is an expert who can definitely provide proper information for people to make rational decisions. Right. You know, it's great to say that 2011 and for a few years, I think we had really the market to ourselves. And then now we have folks that are coming in starting in 2014 and the user activated soft fork. We talked to the vortex about that. And there was a real need for good information told by knowledgeable people. And then the user activated soft fork crisis uh, kind of passed into history. And thank God it, it ended well. Um, but uh, as you point out, there are so many fragmentations in the space now, so many, quote, influencers, so many people doing podcasts. It seems like the space is kind of, I, I guess, uh, not to be cruel, but littered with just uh, hundreds and hundreds of voices out there. Um, so uh, how can one know the difference between somebody that has a legitimate uh, idea of what's going on and someone who doesn't? Or is it impossible to know? No, it's not impossible to know because everyone has a history, and especially the guys we're working with right now in media, they've been around a long time trying to get their voice out there. You can do your homework on guys like you who've been around a long time. Tone Vase, been around a long time. Uh, Wall, ex Wall, Street, Wall Street professional. You have Jimmy Song, core developer. You have Saifedean Amus, who's working with us on the Bitcoin Standard podcast, who just wrote the Bitcoin Standard. These All right. So, as you point out, the podcasting business and the crypto business seem to be going down the same path of rapid adoption. I remember when podcasting first came out, Adam Curry, our friend Adam Curry, has been on our show a couple of times, you know, known as the pod father. Uh, he kind of broke ground there. Um, is it the, where's your biggest market for this? Who do you market to? Who's really listening to crypto podcasts? Well, um, that's a hard question to answer, but I'll do my best. So I can tell you this much. People who are watching crypto YouTube are not the same people who are listening to crypto podcasts. Those are typically unique because nobody's doubling up on the same content. So what we're starting to see is that we are grabbing uh, people who are interested in maybe stocks or, or markets in general, and we're pulling them from the traditional financial markets into the crypto space. And that's kind of been our goal all along. Uh, crypto YouTube is kind of like this little niche community and kind of can be an echo chamber. So we're trying to break out of that and YouTube 
does. So, so we feel that moving forward into this medium is just the, the, the next logical and rational step. You know, they say Bitcoin is uncensored, uncensored economics, uncensored speech in, in many ways. And, um, you know, with podcasting, of course, you'd have the risk of majors coming in. I remember during the dot-com era, you had a lot of independent media outlets like MarketWatch, you know, started off as an independent. Then it was bought out uh, by a major uh, Wall Street um, kind of uh, media conglomerate. And will there be a point in time when these independent voices kind of get smothered by the mainstream media? We've already seen it with broadcasts like CNBC covering crypto. They seem to approach it like Wall Street 1985. They don't really understand crypto. They don't really understand Bitcoin information. Uh, is that a huge problem in this space when the majors like CNBC, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, they try to cover Bitcoin. They, they're hatchet men for the corrupt economists like Rubini and Krugman. Uh, how, how about the effect? Are you going to be effective in battling that, that wall of, of, of FUD, as it's called, fear, uncertainty, and doubt? Yes, I have no doubts. And one of the things that I will comment is, and you, you touched on it, is that these guys don't understand Bitcoin and crypto and what's happening. The reality is Bitcoin is a technology. It is a secondary financial instrument after it is a technology. It follows technological curves of adoption, and it will leave people trying to stick it into a financial mold, kind of bewildered as to why it's not working. So until these guys figure this out, and they can do so by listening to one of 15 podcasts that we're currently managing at private key publishing um, but eventually uh, truth like the light of day will always uh, be seen by all well let me dig into that a little Bitcoin straddles both worlds it's a bit like that uh, phys physics experiment Schrodinger's cat yes you know being in two places at the same time or not being anywhere at any time uh, the uncertainty principle as it's known and yet, you know, the people that you would understand Bitcoin as a technology and the adoption rates are uh, appearing to be those of a new technology. At the same time, they're trying to come to grips with the fact that we've transitioned from Bitcoin as peer-to-peer -peer cash and a, and a payment rail to Bitcoin as a settlement system and gold 2.0, which is an economic consideration. So the, the people that can talk in both camps, that have an understanding of both, uh, you mentioned Tone Vase. He was on Wall Street, got into crypto. I was on Wall Street. We got into gold, and then we got into crypto. But it's very few people actually can be articulate and, under, and, and, and lucid in both finance and technology. So, I mean, how many people in the world are actually able to talk about this? Not a whole lot. And fortunately, I have found myself in a position to where um, I'm able to interact with the vast majority of the guys who can speak in both camps. Um, and so together, we're working to build what we consider uh, to be breaking through all the barriers that things like YouTube, CNBC, and even your show couldn't do. Uh, I believe the podcasting will take these guys' voice to the mainstream, and it's the only path that there is for these guys. Now, you're creating a bit of a monster here in that you're creating stars. You know, uh, we know from the entertainment industry that um, the star system it kicks in. And suddenly their cost of talent goes up and uh, they get pulled away by more uh, well-capitalized entertainment companies. What if suddenly there's a crypto show on ABC on Thursday nights, Tone Bays along with uh, a couple of other folks, and they're being paid like Rachel Maddow, $30 million a year. 
how do you protect yourself against this uh, kind of uh, migration of stars off the platform? Sure. Um, the natural method of maintaining and retaining talent is to transition with them, and we already have plans for development. So basically, as these guys grow, we're going to grow with them and assume responsibility is on the back end uh, to ensure that they're not taken advantage of, to ensure that their proper information isn't being censored or edited when it's put out. Uh, we're going to stand by these guys to make sure that the message gets through because it is that is what it's all about for us is the message promoting Bitcoin and making sure that understanding of Bitcoin flourishes. Okay, so it's really a hybrid model. You have the platform or the label, plus you want to also get get into talent management kind of agency side of the business to uh, help help your pool of talent navigate those uh, waters of fame as they become increasingly more uh, popular on uh, the mainstream press. Darling, uh, he is uh, traveling all over the world and speaking to the heads of state. And uh, would you put him in the camp of somebody who's a good representative for the industry? Unfortunately, no. Um, Vitalik... I think, um, you know, it's been said for a long time that the road to hell was paved with good intentions. And I think that Vitalik started off on a path to create something amazing. But I think as people have had a couple of years to kind of look back and analyze what he's done, what the final outcome of the Ethereum platform has turned into, um, you'll see that really he created a system of printing money that really is kind of worthless. And we're not going to see much development or any kind of scaling or actual product usage out of decentralized applications because no one's using them because no one needs to. Wow. This very moment. Anyway, thanks for coming on the Kaiser Report. Thank you, Max. All righty. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. I thank my guest, Corey Hughes. If you want to catch us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. Until next time, bye, y'all.